Welcome to Common Ground Berlin, a podcast in which we delve into issues that matter to you in the German capital and beyond. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. In 1990, East and West Germany became one country again with Berlin as its capital. It was a time of great rejoicing for all Germans, but the honeymoon quickly wore off. Years later, some Germans would joke, bring the wall back and this time build it three times taller. The commissioner for Eastern Germany, Karsten Schneider, recently told public broadcaster DW, reunification is completed even if it's not perfect. But is that an understatement given pension and wage disparities and political divisions that continue to exist between Germans in the East and Germans in the West? To answer this and other questions about German unity or disunity, I'm joined via Zoom in Norfolk by Katja Hoyer, a journalist and historian who is the author of the bestseller Beyond the Wall, and in Berlin by award-winning producer Jörg Winger, co-creator of the hit series Deutschland 83, and more recently, Sam a Saxon. Welcome, Jörg and Katja. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having us. Katja, you were born in Guben, East Germany, and Jörg, you were born in Cologne, West Germany. Why do each of you think it's taking more than a generation to make Germany feel like one country? And we'll start with Katja. Well, I think in actual fact, it's kind of regressed a little bit again. I think in the 90s, um, there was a genuine sense that, you know, this had been a long time coming, unification, people were pleased to see kind of that history had gone the way it was meant to have gone, you know, and there was this whole idea that 1990 was the end of history, not just for the world, but for Germany in particular, kind of this was the happy ending to the punishment of division, really, that was, um, you know, given to Germany basically after the Second World War. And I think that this enchantment that has set in since has got stronger rather than weaker. So I think this idea that we just need to wait a certain amount of time before all Germans feel um, similarly sort of appreciated and then part of one country again is a bit of a falsehood. I think it needs active work, empathy, understanding, you know, dialogue basically to to make that happen. And, and there was always the assumption that it would kind of just naturally work out that way. So I think rather than thinking it's now been a generation, why hasn't the problem been solved? I think the bigger issue is that the tension seems to have got bigger, particularly in the recent sort of year or so. Jörg, do you agree? Are you sensing that the tensions um, are getting bigger? I'm not sure. I think uh, I'm, I'm, I agree with uh, what Katja said about the uh, work that needs to be done. But I think that it's always been brewing. And I think that even in the early 90s, um, something we uh, touch upon in our series, Sam Saxon, even during reunification, after reunification, I think we often oversee what actually happened under the surface. On the surface, we saw, you know, hundreds of thousands of people waving flags and chanting the same slogan. But I think underneath, there was already a movement or several movements that were really not aligned with a democracy, with our values of democracy and freedom. And I think because it is an imperfect union, I think now we are more aware and people are much more verbal about their discontent in the East. Um, so I would say maybe in the early 90s, people were more verbal in the West about their disinterest, possibly in East Germany. And uh, now it's turned around to um, very open hostilities in East Germany. Well, let's talk first a little bit about what has worked these past 33 years, because obviously you can get on a train as a total stranger coming to Germany. You can get on a train and go all the way from one side of the country to the other. There might be some who perhaps don't 
no history and wouldn't even understand that this used to be two countries, a very divided two countries during the Cold War. So, Katya, what do you think has worked especially well with reunification? I think there's been a lot of investment in things like infrastructure and also the rebuilding of, you know, whole cities and, and towns and villages when you think, you know, what East Germany looked like really in the in the uh, late 80s in particular because the whole inner towns of old towns of city centres had been left to decay. It was, you know, East Germany permanently lacked building materials and was sort of focusing on building up housing very quickly on the outskirts of towns and cities such as Dresden, for example. Um, whilst the rebuilding process of older structures or indeed the maintenance of older structures was kind of neglected to a point where, you know, if you visited the country in, in the late 80s, basically it was shocking to see sort of crumbling walls and, and houses and things. So, you know, when you now come to East Germany, as you say, you don't really see that much of a difference on the sort of physical side of things. So, you know, things have been modernized and upgraded. Um, and that has often been a really real kind of bone of contention in the West, um, because many of uh, the towns and cities there had been neglected for a while as well. And basically, a lot of that money was now invested in what was the East before. So there has been, I think, an understanding that there needs to be a sort of leveling up process, really, between the two countries, um, particularly things like telephone lines, you know, later internet, those sorts of things. Um, and much, a lot of money was invested, literally billions of then Deutschmarks and later euros have been invested into the East. And that's, I think, really enabled cities such as Dresden and Jena and, and Leipzig and so on to do actually really well. And you see those um, kind of prospering. I think where there's been less of an understanding is, I think, on the sort of social and economic side, just how much devastation there was, particularly actually around the time of unification. Um, where industry was dismantled very quickly, um, you know, and, and there wasn't enough thought of what long-term damage that would do if you kind of just denationalize or privatize things at rapid pace and give everything away effectively um, because that wasn't rebuilt. And then you have kind of this long-term economic damage now. I think that's part of the reason why people are so unhappy there. Jörg, are there sticking points that you see and how does Germany resolve them? Uh, Katja talked about a few, but I'm wondering what sticks out for you. Well, I agree with uh, what Katja was saying. I think the contrast is highest when you leave Leipzig, Dresden, and the shining examples for what you know West German money or international capital was able to do with all these crumbling uh, buildings. And the contrast is highest when you get into cities like Gera, um, smaller towns, towns that are closer to the Polish and or Czech border where you see that the facades are beautiful, but you immediately recognize that the people are somehow in sharp contrast to the buildings um, in their own emotional state, in their lives, and even, I would say, of course, in their economic well-being. So this is sometimes misleading to see all these wonderful renovations. One of my favorite examples, it's a a couple of years ago was Belitz, which is not so far from uh, Berlin, where you saw a beautiful restored village or town, no one on the street. And after 6 p.m., there were two places open. One was a two-star Michelin restaurant. And the other one across the street was the Wahlbüro for the AFD, the hard right party that is now making headlines. So in a way, some, you know, well-to-do Berliners would come and have a fabulous meal on one side of the street 
And on the other side of the street were people who really drummed up support and tried to um, profit and benefit from the frustrations of the local population very successfully, as we know yet now. Also, I, I want to add that, uh, you know, Sam Saxon is a, is a story about a black East German. And when we were looking for locations to shoot in East Germany, it was very clear where the dividing line is. I can tell you that we established as a rule that our black colleagues would take the ICE, which is the fast train, to Leipzig or Dresden, but they would not go alone on a regional train into the smaller towns. Um, and that's not a theoretical risk uh, that you expose people who are obviously different, like black Germans. There's a real threat of violence in certain parts of East Germany now. And it is very deeply concerning to see this playing out in real life. Katya, how do you respond to that? I mean, is East Germany, again, this is, I, I think, one of the things that makes East Germans upset, whether it's valid or not, and you can speak to this better than I, but just that there is this perception that it's an AFD stronghold and that it's a racist place and that immigrants are not comfortable there. Is that true, do you feel? Well, it is an AFD stronghold. There's no way <laughs> kind of around that when you look at the statistics and the way that people vote in both in the real elections and in the surveys as well. Um, having said that, there are areas like that in, in West Germany as well, particularly in, mm. you know, the areas that are now turning into AFD strongholds in many mm. German, East West German states as well, particularly in the South and the Southwest, um, where that is also the case in, in rural areas. And it's been pointed out often as well that part of the issue is that culturally, because it's so rural as well, you know, it's often underestimated, I think, that the more recent history with East and West Germany comes on top of a much, much longer history where, you know, the former East is a much more rural place, therefore much more conservative and often kind of much more disaffected with the sort of politics that get made and, you know, what people perceive as those up there in the cities or, you know, in, in Britain and in the US, you've got this kind of idea of the metropolitan elites, you know, and that sort of aversion is much stronger in many East German areas simply because they are very rural and feel left behind and feel very disaffected with kind of mainstream politics, as it were. Where there is disgruntlement and anger in the East, it's often easier for a party like the AFD to make use of a sort of collective feeling. So you can tap into a collective identity as East Germans when you're putting kind of your political campaigns forward. So the AFD uses slogans like Vollende die Wende, so like complete the peaceful revolution of 1989. And, and they're able to sort of say to people, you know, you fought a dictatorship then and here is another government that's trying to tell you what to do. And now we're going out onto the streets again. And whether that is true or not isn't really the point. The point is that they have a collective group of people that feel like they have something in common. Um, and that's easier to then mobilize and make use of than it is for, a, you know, somebody who sits in Bavaria might not feel that they have very much to do with somebody who's in the Rhineland, for example. So, you know, from that angle, the AFD is just very, very good at kind of collecting the anger and making sure that they can form that into political activism or into voting um, figures in the East much easier just because there is a feeling of those people are doing something to us and those categories don't necessarily exist in the same form elsewhere. Well, that's interesting. You talk about the rural versus uh, non-rural, and that's definitely something that's been talked about. But I would like to ask, uh, Jörg, do you think that the divide between Eastern and Western Germans is a generational one? I mean, in other words, are younger Germans who don't even remember the Wende or weren't around for the Wende, do they even feel this division that we're talking about today? 
I think it's dep it depends on who you're talking about, because a lot of East Germans have uh, moved around in their lives. Uh, young people have moved to West Germany or they've spent time in the, in the UK or, you know, wh wherever they went. And I think um, they have their roots in East Germany. And I think there's a lot of pride if you're coming from Leipzig or if you're coming from, you know, your area. But I don't think they... Um, feel the same identification that someone, you know, we've read and heard a lot about, especially young uh, white males who stay in their towns and villages and uh, never leave. And I think that is a big problem because they never really get exposed to, you know, a multicultural society. Uh, we, we have to emphasize that the hatred, for example, against foreigners, refugees, black Germans, Jewish Germans uh, is uh, very much theoretical because um, none of these people actually dare to live in the strongholds in East Germany. We went on a school tour recently through Saxony. We were invited by, I would say, courageous teachers in Saxony who told us um, that basically fascism is now the mainstream in their towns and they are afraid and they also made a conscious decision to invite us to the school to talk about you know what it means to be black and german for example but everything that's related to the subject and uh, they're taking a real risk uh, inviting us so one big reason i think for the trend currently is just that people want to belong and they want to be part of the majority and once you have this trend established um, like in some parts of East Germany, again, not all parts and mostly rural parts, um, it is very hard for people to uh, speak up for democracy if you are in the minority. Katja, how is immigration to Germany helping or making worse this East and West German divide that we're talking about? Well, I get the feeling that a lot of people feel they have no... And this this is the moderate sort of end of the spectrum rather than the, you know, kind of extreme end. Um, but it's interesting that the AFD has had such a big influx over the last uh, few years. Um, and I think that kind of influxes people that aren't necessarily a kind of outright racist, but do feel that something isn't working. Therefore, immigration is often the topic that they talk about the most when, when sort of I interview them. And a lot of the time, it seems to be issues where they feel they don't get a say in things. So um, Germany allocates refugees to particular areas according to like a really complicated formula where they basically say, so and so many refugees, um, you know, need to be housed and uh, put up in this particular uh, local area. But there isn't really extra kind of support for those areas. They just get told um, that they have to find housing, say, for example. So often it's uh, the local sports hall that gets requisitioned for that or town halls and places like that. And um, there was one case that I remember from an area where a lot of my friends live in Brandenburg. Uh, recently, there was a big uh, demonstration there because, again, it was the sports hall that was supposed to be used, but they hadn't actually lifted the requirement for the A-level students to do PE as part of their A-level education. So the students now feared that they wouldn't, wouldn't be able to get their qualifications because they wouldn't be able to do sports education, basically, whilst their ball was out of use. The um, headmaster had only found out about this from the press. He hadn't been told beforehand, you know, and there's those kinds of things that lead to a lot of anger. And you had lots of people out 
on the streets the students actually started it so the you know high school students who went to that school and then basically from all the way to the SPD they were out on the streets with them there was a demonstration against this kind of you know lack of involvement of the local community in this decision making process and these things often lead to a lot of anger and then the AFD is the party that sits there you know in the pubs and in the local town square and organizing events and says to people look we understand you're angry and we're going to do this and you know we're going to curb immigration um, and people feel that you know even if it's a protest vote that that's a way to register their discontent about these things and that the problem is that they are now in the same party or voting for the same party as the you know kind of hardcore sort of 10 15 percent or whatever it may be of people um, who are actual, you know, racists and, and xenophobes and so on. And, and they're giving a voice to a party that will bring those uh, kind of arguments and, and uh, ideologies to the fore. And that's, I think, where the real danger is and the, the problem exists. The more kind of people you drag over from the mainstream into that party, the bigger it gets. And I think that's how it got to be in the second largest party in the polls and the largest in the East at this point. Katya, a quick follow-up. In your book, you talk about the story of GDR citizens deserving a place or more of a place in the German narrative. Is the lack of that contributing or fueling protests and the sort of going over to parties that scare most Germans, frankly, like, you know, Alternative for Germany? I think the big up issue is actually stuff that happened post-1990. So, you know, I think that's more of a recent thing. I think the old narrative that, you know, people just weren't used to democracy or were socialized in a dictatorship, I do think that is nonsense, and not least because people tried to actually enact their the few rights that they had in the GDR quite vocally is sometimes known as the complaining society because the only way that you could actually say in the GDR, you know, there was no public space, you couldn't debate, you couldn't discuss, it was a dictatorship. So the only way that people could say that they were unhappy was to file a complaint, you know, in a sort of... Kafka-esque bureaucratic manner Um, and many people did and you know they were flooded with like these formal kind of letters of complaints to newspapers but also to um, you know the the local authorities or or somebody who runs a factory Um, so people did try within the means that they had to actually make their their voices heard and you see in the first three elections in 1990 that the vast majority of people voted for mainstream parties and for quick reunification um, so the bigger issue, I think, is the fact that um, people have been given the impression that before 1990, their life didn't really count. They sort of led false lives and, and they must now repent and, and sort of see the error of their ways and start again in 1990. And it's interesting, I start in my book with Angela Merkel, that even she felt that way and was only able to sort of addressed that in 2021 in her last speech in office, um, where she said that, you know, her her life before 1990 was kind of brushed aside as as ballast, like a heavy load that she needs to shrug off. And she said, well, hang on a minute, that's 35 years of my life that you want me to shrug off. Um, So I think it's it's just acknowledging that people had more complex lives. It wasn't kind of a, a passive existence that happened up until kind of there was reunification in 1990. But actually, people did stuff in that time, you know, and had very varied and very different experiences and I think that can be part of a process of making East German history German history as well for sort of better or worse. Uh, well Jörg, your series Sam Saxon certainly and not just that Deutschland 83 you focus a lot on the East. Does that help? Do you think that this is doing a little bit of what Katya is talking about you know rectifying the emission that's there and I'd be curious to take uh, to hear Katya's take on that after you answer hmm. the question. 
Yeah, well, I, yeah, it's, it's it's interesting because I did move to Leipzig in 1999 to start producing a um, crime show for the public broadcaster ZDF, Soko Leipzig. And then from there, I went to Deutschland, 83, 86, 89, and then to Sam So basically, my entire 20 years as a producer, I basically told East German stories as a West German. I know that's problematic, uh, but I also, I think... There's a lot of attention you get for East Germany because it is just such an interesting history and such an interesting... I mean, West Germany, for all its um, merits, is quite boring uh, <laughs> in comparison. So I think that's something... That's why it lends itself to you know dramatic exploitation, I guess. But back to your question, we do want, and that doesn't exclude West Germans, we do want people to experience experience what it's like uh, to be a black German in historical events that are usually celebrated. And reunification and the 9th of uh, November 9th and many other events uh, were felt very differently to people who were not white. You know, this is something we, we focus on. And of course, we also we want to create, we want to use the tools of uh, fictional storytelling by emotionalizing, by letting people, you know, step into the shoes of someone who is, you know, not like them. Uh, there's also, of course, a whole other side. Uh, there's a whole meaning for, I would say, the Afro-German community and what the series means to them. But for the white um, majority in Germany, yes, we do think storytelling, I do believe storytelling can be a piece of the puzzle. But I would like to go back to something that Katya said beforehand, I think the problem is that we just don't work as hard uh, as the IFD. Um, that doesn't only concern their very engaged and passionate uh, missionaries in the pubs and in the schools and in the Feuerwehr and uh, on the playgrounds and wherever they meet their local prey. Um, I think the big German democratic parties are used to doing their policies in a quiet matter, in a quiet way. And when there's an election, they come out and they put up posters and they want to be in the Tagesschau in ARD and they want to be in the Süddeutsche Zeitung and then that's it. And I think that uh, the AfD is using all the new media channels, the social media, in such an aggressive and um, successful way that um, the established parties and, let's say, the civic society has to counter that, I guess, with a different way to communicate. We were just um, years behind on social media and in real life uh, and in the more traditional media. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a battle that we're about to lose, I fear. So, Katya, um, that's a pretty profound statement at the air. So, do you feel it's a battle we're going to lose before I have you comment about whether you think Sam a Saxon helps the East-West German divide or makes it worse? Um, I, I fear that if nothing changes, we're going to lose that battle just because it, it does strike me that there isn't much understanding or certainly it hasn't really sunk in, I don't think, in Berlin just how urgent the situation is. I mean, I have lots of family and friends all over East Germany in the areas that are sort of the um, the real kind of strongholds, if you will, of the AFD. And I've seen people go down very, very dark 
rabbit holes, people who I think could be retrieved and were once <laughs> normal people in, in, in sort of inverted commas, but people who weren't angry and so deeply disaffected with life in East Germany and in Germany in general that they felt they had to go down that route. Um, and I think these people are just being given up upon. There just seems to be a feeling that, you know, they're, they're sort of racist or whatever and, and fascist in any case. So therefore, what's the point in trying? Um, you know, then people complain about high rents, for example, or high house buying prices, high interest rates. And then you have all of shots going out and saying, well, they used to be much higher back in the 70s, you know, without any kind of consideration about the fact that all sorts of other factors play into this, not least house prices and things. Um, and it, it just comes across as callous, like, you know, like they don't care basically about these very valid concerns. And, and that, I think, needs to shift or we will lose that battle because the AFD is much better at um, sort of channeling that anger. They're not actually offering solutions either, but they are much better at providing a sort of platform, making people feel that they're listening to them and that they're being heard um, and that their concerns are being listened to. And I think that in itself is quite powerful. And that is something that is quite um I wouldn't say easy, but it's possible to replicate that for the other political parties as well to show that they are, that they do actually care about their voters, basically. That's that's the key thing. And the series, I mean, the question about whether um, having, because again, part of what you've talked about is that there's just not enough discussion about the narrative of, you know, GDR times. And Jörg has made, you know, a lot of amazing series on this. I'm just wondering from your perspective, does this sort of difficult storytelling, because Samma Saxon is a difficult story about some difficult times, uh, does that help or or does that fuel, you know, problems that we're seeing between Eastern and Western Germans? I must admit I haven't seen Samma Saxon yet, but I, I did really like the Deutschland series, not least because they were actually very nuanced, I thought, and, and very careful not to stigmatize and not to uh, kind of create sort of hackneyed, cliched characters, but actually kind of well-rounded individuals with, with all their complications and their different life stories, both East and West. So I think these sorts of things do help because they bring out an interest in the GDR. And as Jörg said, it is a very, very fascinating society and country that I think is often underestimated because people see it in black and white. Um, and, and that's really helped, I think, bring about... Um, you know, people just asking questions about it, wanting to find out about it, not just in Germany, by the way, it's also internationally very mm. kind of well recognized and it's brought the GDR certainly as a piece of history kind of back onto people's minds. And I think that that does help. Well, Jörg, it took you a long time to get Sam a Saxon, you know, to find someone that was actually willing to carry this or to show this. It took you if I'm not mistaken, 20 years to That's bring right. it to the to the screen. If it took this long to get that story told, you know, why not, let's say, do it about the first black officer in a Western German police force? I mean, would that uh, not have had the same kind of traction? Again, I think for the reasons mentioned earlier, I think that um, it is probably a more dramatic story. Of course, we're talking about a real story, right? We're talking about someone's life. So we didn't really have the choice. We didn't really sit there and think, hmm, are we going to tell the story of the first black or West German. The the story I think of Samuel Mefira has is truly intersectional because it is not only the story about a black German, it's also the story about an East German. So uh, I think you could say, I mean this I don't want to sound too flippant, but you could say he's double traumatized in the way he goes through his experience and the fact his original trauma that his own father was killed 
hours before he was born. Um, it could have happened in West Germany, of course, but it did not. And uh, I think it unfortunately has something to do with um, the fact that in the GDR, the way that people from other countries, immigrants, were treated, um, I mean, it was less tolerant, I guess, than in West Germany, because they were often very isolated from the general population. And I have to say, I've never thought about what the difference would be to a West German, but I think that in a way, we looked at Samuel Mefira's life and we found it so telling on so many levels, on the East German level and on the level of race and ethnicity that, uh, you know, we wanted to sell it in 2006, actually. In 2006, the decision makers at the German broadcaster said, I personally think it's an amazing story, but I don't think our audience is ready for this. And these and, bosses, we should point out, are in West Germany, the heads of these broadcasting companies. Yeah, and if they were in East Germany, they were also probably West German. Right. Um, so were they referring to um, we're not ready to tell an East German story or were they telling us we're not ready, our audience is not ready for a black German experience? I think it's the latter. But they might have as well meant the East German part. Well, Katja, Germany is often praised for facing its Nazi past and its historic responsibility for the Holocaust and, you know, teaching this in schools, creating what uh, has some describe as a collective guilt. I'm just wondering, why can't Germany do the same for its Cold War legacy? Why can't they tell the East and the West German story in a way that would bring some peace or some closure to both sides? Well, I think it thinks it's doing that. <laughs> Um, if that makes sense. So, you know, there, there are organizations like the Bundesstiftung Aufarbeitung, whose whole purpose, legal purpose, and this is enshrined in the law, it is to deal with the legacy of, of the GDR, but it is a very, very one-sided approach. I mean, it does actually say in the founding sort of document of it that its purpose is to highlight the memory of the victims of that regime. So that leaves well, about 80% of the population who don't feel that they were victims of the regime as such um, um, and were either, you know, an active part of it, um, that's, again, the minority, uh, or the majority of people who kind of just lived their lives there. Um, so I think it does need a slightly different approach. I think the problem was that Germany wanted to feel that 1990 was a moment of closure, basically, and, and what came before particularly in the in the East, um, wasn't sort of its real destiny. It wasn't the real Germany. It wasn't what Germany wants to be. Whilst in the West, people had been telling themselves that 1945 or, or 1949, the, the foundation of West Germany, is the sort of Stunde Null, the, the zero hour, the tabula rasa moment, at which point a proper democracy could start to grow. And the moment you start to question that and, and sort of draw a slightly different line in 1990, you also have to look back at the problems that were there in West Germany. And that's an uncomfortable thing to do because it sort of questions the foundation and people like the foundation of their states. You know, you look at the US and the whole myth around the founding fathers and all that. Um, there's very much a sense that, you know, the proper Germany basically started in the West in 1949. Um, and then the East was absorbed into that, was basically annexed into it um, and, and became part of that. And the moment you start shaking that, you start shaking a lot of kind of foundational beliefs in what modern Germany is and, and what it isn't. And I think that's what makes it quite a painful 
process. And it's a minority at the end of the day, I think, you know, the idea that the concerns of a fifth of the population that has asked to join the state in 1990, let's not forget that, um, you know, there, there's that element there that, you know, you wanted to be part of this, now you are. So what are you complaining about as well? Well, my last question is to both of you. This month marks 33 years of German reunification. Where do each of you see Germany 33 years from now? Will Germans have gotten over the divide? And Jörg, you can start. Um, I think these kind of forecasts are difficult, especially about the future, as someone said once. And 33 years from now, I don't know. I think that um, currently, I think we are in a existential crisis, I would say. Um, and this relates to the German-German relations, but it also relates to the German-American relations. Um, I would like to add this aspect. We just did a tour in the U.S. with Sam Saxon and the colleges in the United States were supported by the Goethe Institute and by the German Embassy in Washington, etc. It was very interesting uh, to talk to Americans where I would say, you know, democracy is under threat, certain aspects of democracy are under threat. And it's very hard to um, imagine, I think, for Americans, because they've had one political system for hundreds of years, whereas Germany has been going through monarchy, dictatorship, failed democracy, communism, successful democracy. And I think now we're entering the next stage. And it was really interesting to discuss this with Americans who can't even imagine that the system is really at risk or what it means if democracy were toppled. So I think currently I'm very concerned with saving democracy. I mean, hopefully making sure that the AfD does not win elections in East Germany next year in uh, Thüringen and in Saxony. And I think um, as a storyteller, I would like to help, but I think uh, that's not enough. I think we need much more work from um, the established parties, from citizens um, on the local level, on the regional level, on the national level. And it is a real existential question. And I, I can't predict you the outcome, but I'm hopeful that we will uh, sort it out. Katya, what does your crystal ball say? <laughs> Yeah, it's a bit murky in there as well. Um, 33 years is a, <laughs> is a long time uh, to predict anything. Um, I would share Jörg's uh, sort of fears along the lines of, I think there's been too much complacency. I think the idea that, you know, the end of history had happened and, and the moment that in the 90s and early 2000s, you know, with the peace dividend coming in and people feeling we don't need armies anymore. The, the world's just going to be a peaceful place. And internally, the SPD and the CDU are just going to sort of be like the Republicans and the Democrats, like the forever mainstream parties um, that people will kind of switch between or sometimes both of them are in power at the same time. But really, there's no danger from the far left or the far right at any point. I think that's been a really, really dangerous mode to get into. It's interesting to see when you look long term about the decline of both of the mainstream parties, mm. um, how both of them have just ignored that. At no point was there a sense of urgency or kind of, you know, the explanation for that was always, well, you know, that that was the post-war system and now people break up into smaller parties and they vote for the FDP, like the Liberals and the and the Green Party as well. So therefore, we, we see this break up. But, you know, the fact that people stopped 
believing and the visions kind of put forward by the two mainstream parties, which is really the sort of, I would say, foundation of what post-war Germany wanted to be, like a sort of moderate democracy that promotes its moderate um, policies and the fact that that isn't attractive anymore to people in the way that it was after the war I think should worry us and we do need to think about why that is and yes there are some global trends and but there are too many German commentators who just say well just look at the US or look at France it's the same happening there as if that was some sort of excuse to not do anything about it or not think about it anymore and I think it is genuinely very dangerous and in Germany in particular where I think there are legacies, historical legacies of all sorts of different kinds, not least this insecurity, I would say, that Germany still has in itself. Was, mm -hmm. You know, as Jörg was just saying, yeah. you go to the US and you have something like really quite extreme happening, like, you know, the MAGA movement, the Make America Great Again movement under, under Trump. And people don't think it's going to shake their system fundamentally because they it's always been there you know it's gone through the great depression and survived it and all of those kinds of things i think there's less of a fundamental uh kind of fear there about or kind of misunderstanding about what america is and what it isn't whilst germany is still in itself you know such a young state one of the youngest european nation states and there's still this kind of constant search for identity going on and i think if you have that many people disgruntled that the second largest political party is now threatening to be the afd there is something very seriously amiss there in a country that still isn't entirely sure about what it actually is and what it wants to be. Um, and that's what worries me going forward, especially when we're now thinking kind of several decades forward, that there is a potential, I think, for this to go very wrong in the way that is perhaps less the case and more established and kind of longer lasting or longer existing uh, democracies. That was Katja Hoyer, author of Beyond the Wall. And my other guest was Jörg Winger, co-creator of Sam Saxon. Thanks to you both. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. Common Ground Berlin's senior producer is Dina El Sayed, and our social media intern is Maya Ravlik. Our podcast is funded by a grant administered by the German Ministry for Economic Affairs and Climate Action. And our partners are Goethe Institute and the German Marshall Fund of the United States. All of our episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at CG Berlin Podcast. <laughs>